This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's It's Rog. Oh, it's Wednesday. We've made it. What a day today is at Men in Blazers, our turgid little world. Today at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, we've got a Men in Blazers Instagram Live, only with Kelly O'Hara, your two-time back-to-back World Cup winner. She'll raise a bud with me. Join us on Insta, at Men in Blazers. We've also launched an art auction. Yeah, to be candid, I am so proud of this. With the Seattle Sounders goalkeeper, a great GFOP, Stefan Fry, he has painted an unbelievable portrait of me. My portrait of him, slightly less unbelievable. I tried hard. Both are up for auction today. We are raising money for small businesses and food banks in the great city of Seattle. You can bid early, you can bid often. I encourage you to do both over the next couple of days on www.sounders.givesmart.com. Courage to the city of Seattle and the beautiful, beautiful state of Washington. You are in my heart, but let's get down to business. Wednesday podcasts, they're the best podcasts. They're designed to lift the spirit and give you Belarusian Football League-level energy. It's a thrill of thrills to have this man join us, a double pioneer as a legendary broadcaster. You know him as the man who, yes, invented television. Facts! But he also carried the banner for football, soccer, in the wilderness years, a solo mission at ESPN, back before football was cool. He also pioneered the quarantine beard, before the rest of us even knew a quarantine existed. We welcome to the pod, from an undisclosed location on the Florida Keys, oh, the first Golden Blazer, the General. It's Mr. Bob Lee. Raj, you and I can see each other, and I will, your, your quarantine beard is just simply a, a marvelous explosion of, of, of hormones. It's, it, it's tremendous. It's a garden. It is a garden, and I'm tending to. I will say, hearing your voice... I instantly feel, Bob, like everything's going to be all right. It isn't, but it's nice to self-deceive, if only for a minute. Well, we all have to live with a little bit of rationalization in our days. What's that line from uh, The Big Chill? It's more important than sex. When's the last time you went through a day without a rationalization? But it will be all right. But, you know, sometimes you have to take a step back, get a sense of perspective, and uh, take a few deep breaths before you take the free kick. Oh. Where are you, Bob? Where are we finding you? In the Keys, in Florida, at our home down here. Uh, separated uh, by about 1,500 miles from the grandkids and the children and my dad. And, uh, and nestled in, uh, in the closet back at uh, the Manson, uh, Connecticut, uh, the original Golden Blazer. But I will tell you it's under personal safekeeping because my, my nephew who lives in the city is currently doing us a solid by keeping an eye on the house. And I said, every day, every day, Andrew, you check to make sure it still hangs in that closet, undisturbed by any issues, <laughs> stray winds, pests, and give it a little bit of a, a brush. Keep the dust off it. And- you got to oil it. Oh, absolutely. And be sure, never turn your back on it like royalty and genuflect. And don't look at it in the eye. I do (laughs) love the idea of the golden blazer just like pulsating quietly in your wardrobe like an orb, just emitting energy at all times in the Florida Keys of Hemingway, Truman and Bob Lee. That's where we find you. Are you all in on the uh, the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle now, Bob? 
Uh, not quite all in like that, because it, when you live here, if you party like that, you will soon become a statistic of a different sort. So uh, it's it's a very eclectic community. Uh, we have a saying down here, uh, one human family, and it is in practice. Uh, we're all out for each other. Margaritaville. Oh, I've got to say, the <laughs> nibbling on sponge cake I like. Getting drunk and screwing, okay. Yeah. Watching the sunbake, though, I, I, I realise I'm a cold climate kind of guy, but this is not about me. So big questions first from GFOP. Dwight Cook, how is Bob's quarantine beard at this point? Are birds living in it like Peter Griffin's? Not quite like Peter Griffin's. Uh, the last time I tripped, it was early March. We went out to dinner with some friends, and I was, was wearing a kind of tight. Then came the lockdown, and I said, well, the hell with that. We're just going to uh, let it go. So I'll, I'll trim the mustache so that dinner doesn't end up in it every night. But uh, everything else is it's getting towards um, – it's approaching near Letterman State. Yeah, Letterman calls it a Bob Lee State. Let's be honest. You were there first. Can we get some beard tips, man? Because – I have never had one before. My wife says I currently look like a member of Wally Jumblatt's Flange Militia, like terrorist sheet 1970s. How, how do you keep it kind of so cool, so Kenny Loggins, which is your, you know, it's like you've got this matte thing going on. How do you, what's the secret? Well, the Kenny Loggins thing, I think you refer to the color. The color comes from being this age. You'll be here soon enough. You have more of a monochromatic look, I notice. Or you've gone to, uh, you've taken the advice of Walt Frazier and Keith Hernandez from that TV commercial and you have, you've sent your kids out in the, in, in the pandemic to buy coloring aids for it. Uh, the key thing is to trim it. And uh, but I, I haven't actually you know, trim it around it to sculpt it, give it some, give it some look. Oh, it is handsome. By logins, I meant more that it's in the danger zone. But how, how do you handle <laughs> how, how do you handle quarantine in general, Bob? Are, are you are, are you are you? Some people revel in it, you know. Find out that the break, the pause, the time for reflection, for reading, watching, you know, like life is a challenge, but they actually can meet that challenge well. Other people, cabin fever. Where are you on that? I thought life was a cabaret, old chum. Um, well, you're talking to a man who's newly retired when this all started. So I had already put the clutch in and downshifted, I think, um, the pace of life. So it wasn't a huge, like, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote hitting a wall moment. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of these days, by the way, somebody on Facebook just posted a picture of a roadrunner. Uh, being carried in the mouth of a coyote, suggesting indeed the apocalypse is upon us. Uh, <laughs> this happening in real life, but uh, now it's um, the important thing is a routine and making positive, assertive choices. Uh, I'm staying involved with my alma mater, Seton Hall, working with uh, the professional in residence, B.J. Schechter, there in, in, in teaching a class and helping him acquire some um, uh, some some guest speakers for his sports media class. And I, I dare say, no other class in America is at a more contemporaneous to the moment experience professionally in learning about this from talking with you know major sports officials network people we've been able to get to uh, to the classroom at least remotely uh, reading certainly binging uh, I'll take a good hour a day and walk and because we're able to do a walkabout down here and not have to worry in encountering a lot of people and on the walk I'll inevitably take a bunch of videos to my granddaughters of uh, iguanas or uh, birds or Yesterday it was the uh, the egrets and uh, send those up. They they enjoy that. Oh, Bob Lee in nature. I love that image. Exactly. Me and Marlon Perkins. Oh, but and um, you and Eddie Griffin. My brain yeah. is pinging when I think about the Seton Hall connect. But have you developed any particular wisdom over the past six weeks? A life lesson born of coping. I think the important thing has been um, 
when you were doing what I was doing for so many years for a living, uh, it was type A, type A, type A. It was meetings. You know what? It, you, you do it. And, and you and Davo both are in that world of deadlines to the second, uh, constant meetings, expectations, uh, metrics that gather, you know, that are gathered on you. And when you're, when you're able to get away from that, I think that informs you that indeed, you know, it's more than a two week vacation. Now it's, it's a new chapter. So that, that I think helped prepare me for the ability to, to learn how to relax. It is a art form, which I'm still trying to master. I will say, I do look forward to emails from you, Bob Lee. So, I mean, you send tidbits out of the blue, I must say, that lift my spirits always when I need them. An email from Bob Lee is just a always a joy. A pop career arrives out of nowhere. They come with incredible email titles like a scene to courage to. And I'll open them like a kid with a gift. And I'll find like a pinnacle scene from Apollo 13. I mean, out of nowhere, no message, just a YouTube link. And I feel always so much better. Tell the people what you love about Apollo 13, Bobbly. Well, it's, I think it's Ron Howard's best movie. And it was 50 years ago, just last month, I think, that the entire near tragedy occurred. But I, I read you one morning, and uh, I read you most days, with your, your, you know, the state of your fingers being the first thing you revealed in North America. Oh, terrible newsletter. No, nah, it's lovely. But I, you know, we all are ha- we've all had those days. And, and, and you live in New York City where it's more in, in your face and at hand. And I had just, I had sent this particular clip to a friend uh, the day before, and I said, yeah, this, this is what it's about, how in the face of a challenge, there is opportunity, opportunity to adapt and to succeed and to, to build a, a legacy you can look upon. So the scene in the movie, if you've not seen it, and I highly recommend that you, you, you see it because it will just uplift your entire day and week. Apollo 13, against all odds, is now about to reenter the atmosphere. They have jury-rigged the system to get these three astronauts around the moon and back almost all the way to Earth. Ed Harris portrays Gene Krantz, one of the three flight directors, this iconic hard ass who is the man in charge of, who's in in the movie is given the famous line, failure is not an option. But now we're moments away from the re-entry where if it fails, of course, these astronauts could burn and incinerate if they're too shallow or too steep an angle or if if their re-entry parachutes have been frozen because of the problems and don't deploy. So, and... Uh, Harris is, is getting ready, he's putting his tie together, getting ready for the ultimate moment of the mission. And behind him, Xander Berkeley and Joe Spano, the two actors, two, two officials. The higher-ups. The higher-ups, the suits, the, the NASA suits. Oh. One says to the other, you know, this could go wrong, that could go wrong, this could go wrong. And Joe Spano interrupts Xander Berkeley and says, this could well be the worst disaster that NASA has ever encountered. Oh. At which moment, Ed Harris, portraying Gene Kranz, turns around and says, Excuse me, sir, but with all due respect, I believe this will be our finest hour. Bobbly, just say that line again. I believe this is going to be. With all due respect, sir, I believe this could be our finest hour. Oh, I needed it twice, Bob. I needed that twice. I've got to say, I am not a big Ed Harris fan, Bob. I kind of always feel like he's... He's playing Kristoff from Truman Show, no matter what movie that he's in. Even as Jackson Pollock, huh? Yes, yes, it was still. I'm going to bring the Kristoff energy from the Truman Show <laughs> now, guys. Always. But I'm not going to lie. When you sent this scene to me, it made me tear. Perhaps because it made me realise that you, Bob Lee, are an Apollo 13 in an Armageddon world, just pure class. But, by the way, would you have Ed Harris play Bob Lee in the movie Bob Lee Walks Amongst Nature? Who'd you have? Well, you know, 
Anthony Fauci expressed his wish and he got Brad Pitt. Yes. I mean, how neat was that? That was amazing. Who would Lee go? Where, who would play Lee? It's got to be Ed Harris would do an okay. I think it's got to be Meryl Streep, hasn't it? I mean, it needs someone with range and heft. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would I would accept Harris in a heartbeat because oh. I, I just think he's tremendous. Bite yeah. your arm off for Ed Harris. <laughs> oh, same again, by the way. I asked you ahead of this podcast if you are watching anything to get you through. And everyone is like, no, there's a standard response to this question, Bobbly. You're meant to say, yeah, just finishing off Ozarks or, you know, killing Eve. That's like, those are the two acceptable options. And they're great. Not you, though. Not you. You wrote the most beautiful answer ever, which I adored and again felt elevated. My senses took me to a place I needed to go. You wrote back and said... Spent a lot of time reading about September 15th, 1940. Oh, Bob Lee, enlighten us. Okay, it's the Battle of Britain. And again, we'll go back to World War II. Oh, can we? Uh, which is not to glorify warfare and the horrible experience of it, because I've spent an aggregate of a week in Dresden, the former East Germany, oh. for the Women's World Cup. And I've seen firsthand where they've, they've not yet repaired the damage on some of the buildings from, from 1944. But there are great cultural and, and, and spiritual examples of, of what that war taught us. And in many cases, not until we were several years, if not many years down the road to look back and say, this was a pivotal moment. It is the Battle of Britain, which means that the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, is relentlessly attacking Britain. Britain is standing mm. alone. The United States are not in this war yet. It is the summer of 1940, and they are attacking military installations. They are now beginning to bomb the civilian populations in the city. The possibility of a German invasion of England is at that believed to be, may not have been as real as thought at the time, but at that time believed to be a very real possibility. And so on September 15, 1940, with this war in the skies, the RAF, never before have so many owed so much to so few, uh, to paraphrase Churchill. Churchill goes out to West London, to Uxbridge, to the RAF Sector 11 headquarters, and he's oh. 50 feet underground at the RAF headquarters. And there is the big board where the lights will ex show you which RAF squadron is on the ground in reserve, which is in the air, which is engaged with the enemy, which is sustained damage. Basically, in one glance, you can see how the Battle of Britain is going. Oh. Churchill, the prime minister, in office uh, at that point, what, um, just months at that point, because the war, uh, less than a year, certainly, is there with Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, a native New Zealander and a, and a great uh, servant of the Queen, and they're watching as these squadrons go into battle as reflected by the lights and the reports are coming back and it's fierce battle and this is going to be a pivotal moment. And at what point Churchill turns to the air vice marshal and says, how many reserves have we? And Park fixes him with a glance and he says, prime minister, we have none. Oh, my Every God. plane England had was in the air. All the chips were on the table. The RAF had no reserves for a period of several hours, I believe. Mm -hmm. If they didn't win the day, then it would be an inflection point. And inexorably, the Battle of Britain would then bend towards the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht in Germany. They won the day with no reserves. And it really, when you, you think about, I mean, yes, you can look at D-Day as a pivotal moment in the 20th century because all the good that, and, and all the other challenges that Western civilization have realized, you know, pivoted around that moment. But if, if, if the RAF don't win that day, 
with no reserves, September 15, 1940. Uh, then the Battle of Britain is not won. And then who knows how the other dominoes would have fallen. Oh. We have no reserves. It's all in there. We've used all of, all of our substitutions are used. <sighs> Germany would have always won the past 10 World Cups. It's an amazing story. You know, they downed 56, I believe, German aircraft in two dogfights that lasted close to an hour. I love this historical detail. The number was inflated to 185 in British newspapers. But Britain did gain air supremacy. You never bet against the Spitfire, Bob. That Rolls-Royce Merlin engine could go the full 90. I also love like the, the Churchill nuggets of him going onto the roof of London home to watch bombs falling whilst quoting Tennyson to strive, to seek, to find and not to yield. But more than anything, you know, yeah, you, you said the never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. But the strength that you take from it, is it, is it the heroism of the everyday? Is that what you're seeking and drawing and feeling inspired by? It is that. It's also when you're engaged in something, as we are in this moment of trying to subsist, exist, get through it, learn, reimagine, figure out that not just the balance of today, next week, the next few months, people get their employment back, students get back to school. As you're engaged in it, you're so close to it so close to it that sometimes it's difficult to understand the importance of each day and the, the need to win each day. And if you win each day, bit by bit, I mean, I guarantee, I, I can't believe historians, I mean, I don't know if you've read Churchill's histories of the war. I, I've read several of the volumes. I mean, so, so some of the stuff that went on during the second world war it's, was abhorrent. And, and he writes about it matter of factly, and it puts, it gives a fullness to his character. And they were sacrificing lives needlessly simply for political reasons in the Dardanelles in 1940, things like that. But when you, when you, when you realize it took, it probably took a while for historians to say, wait a minute, that was the moment. That was the fulcrum. That was, that was the bending point. Because if that day had not gone, Britain's way, who knows what, what would have happened. And so you've got to win each day. And then, then you look back. Then you look back. Oh, I love that notion. I l- love that notion, Bob. I mean, that, that is, that is spirit-infusing, you know, win each day. Let's try and win each day now, you know. And if Londoners could take 57 straight nights of bombing, we can take a few months of Netflix. I really believe that. And Churchill closed his speech, the beautiful speech, by saying the right to guide the course of world history is a noblest prize of victory. We are still toiling up the hill. We have not yet reached the crest line of it. We cannot survey the landscape or even imagine what its condition will be when that long fall morning comes. Oh, that I love. I love. Why don't politicians speak like that today, Bob? I don't know. That conversation is for another podcast. (laughs) I need to ask you, how has it been for you? A gentleman whose voice, whose image, whose being is, is almost synonymous in my mind with sports. How has it been for you to experience the absence of sports? Most days, I'll tell you, I don't miss it. And I'll tell you why. Because there are so many other things in winning the day that you have to be concerned about. Not consumed, because I try and, with the help of my lovely bride, put a cap on how much cable news and reading. I, I mean, I've added like two or three. This is how 
<laughs> this is how massive a, a crisis this is. I'm paying for several more newspapers now just to read them. But you, you have to, <laughs> if you know me, you know, I'm catching subscription credentials everywhere. But the point is, uh, you need to be informed. You need to have that data. But you also, you can't, you can't, you can't do anything about it at the end of the day to, to bend policy on a macro scale. So you have to put a cap on, on how much, but in your own life, you get your children, you get your grandchildren, you get your, your, in my case, my dad, who's, you know, a long way from here that we're all of us siblings are working to make sure he and his wife are doing well and whatnot. And um, one daughter is uh, uh, currently furloughed from her position and she lives a far away from here. So, you know, if you're reaching out, trying within your own sphere, your concentric circles here, in your own home, and then your family, and then your, you know, um, it, it'll keep you rather busy, but there are there moments when uh, I fall into a YouTube, YouTube wormhole. Um, and, 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 you know, maybe it's something uh, you're out there doing something as mind numbing as uh, watching Buddy Hackett with Johnny Carson or Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, you know, the, the, Dr. Vinnie Bumbats, the simple name will bring a smile to your face if you're of a certain age. But then you realize on the menu on the right hand side, they, you know, they know what you've been watching. I spent 30 minutes one night watching an assortment of first pitches uh, at New York Met games from last year and the year before. And it got me a little emotional. Like my daughter and I were going to go to Mets opening day in DC. The, the, the Nats and the Mets are huge Mets fans. I brought her up well in that regard, at least, uh, <laughs> and you, you know, and you realize you see that and you say, you know, that's not happening, but you, know, yes. you, can, you can see those moments. I did an interview yesterday for a newspaper and the journalist asked me if, you know, I miss like finding out what happened to Everton and will Liverpool win the title and who will get into the Champions League. And I, I honestly, I said, I don't, that, that is just being shown to mean so little right now. However, you know, I talked to her about the, a, a, um, a video I sent out on Friday of Hibernian fans winning the Scottish FA Cup final in 2016. That was tremendous. I loved it. Uh, and they're singing of the Proclaimer song, Sunshine on Leith. And I said, that's what I missed. The realisation that you will not get fans packed together, singing joyously, making memories together for at least a year, maybe longer. That is... That makes me ache, Bob, in the same way as you thinking about Mets opening day that you cannot share. They're going to go, but baseball will be back, but behind closed doors. That's what makes me ache, Bob. That's what wounds me is that the traditions, the rhythm, the, the, the collective identity, the shared memories, those we're going to have to really forage for in the woods. Yeah, it's... People, it's a common question. People ask me, "Do you wish you were still working?" And I, and I, I don't. I, I, I'm past that point. I don't miss it. it. This is not a sports story. There are aspects to it that are that are sports, and this is one of them. The, the cultural side, you know. And when you live in the deep south, as we do, you know, half the year, um, college football, American college football. The idea that uh, when you, if you're talking to some people that you run into, you know, at a safe distance while you're out and about, you know, around your home. And, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, Miami, Florida, Florida State, they may not be playing this. What do you mean? Uh, well, it, it's possible. I mean, the emotional hold that, that these conventions and games have, I mean, it's of an almost religious fervor. And we're going to get to, I mean, look, what was the neatest part? And I'm going to give full, proper huzzas to the National Football League, to the National Football League, who... Um, have been portrayed and, and accurately so through the years as bloodless corporate and out for the last dollar at any expense. And that just means they're being good business people. But 
technically, along with the good people at ESPN and the NFL Network, they put together this incredible uh, uh, virtual draft uh, telecast with all of these remote feeds showing the and Jerry Jones on his yacht. But more to the point, coaches and personnel people at home with their kids, okay? And 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 both the feedback from seeing even Roger, Roger Goodell in his man cave and in, in his Bronxville, New York, you know, home, and and seeing uh, all of these people at home with their kids. Uh, the public liked it, but the people in the game suddenly realized, you know, maybe we don't have to sleep in the office. Maybe we're overinflating the the manic intensity we bring to this. Because we held a draft. We didn't have to interview personally all of these players. We found a way to do this. And maybe, just maybe, there is a way. And I, I think, you know, with things that I've seen and heard, I think the NFL is looking to harvest the best of the experience of what they just did forward next year into next year's draft. I mean, they've got it, you know, they're coming to a, a major point of decision. Are they going to try and play? Are they going to have to negotiate something back from the union? Uh, will they attempt to play? Meanwhile, they're trying to also consider the, the idea they're going to have to go out and negotiate for extensions of the broadcast contracts from broadcast co- companies that are lying, you know, financially are lying bleeding in the gutter. So it's a very important time, oh. but at least I think there's, you know, the humanity and the, realization that people enjoy seeing these human people at home in their kids. And don't we all look over the shoulder of everybody? What's in their house? What's he got? He didn't read all those books. And there is actually a Twitter account for <laughs> Rate the Room. I've been on it, Bob. They gave me an 8 out of 10. They did. Good for you. Harsh. Disappointed. I was disappointed. If I got, if I ran out and did 90 minutes and got an 8 from, from harsh judges, I would be very happy. But you are for an 8 out of 10 for Rate for My Room. The, um... You're right, though. The, the the draft did show us, apart from Cliff Klingsbury's slightly cocaine-addled clean lines, and no, 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 it was like it was like the a a set of uh, the Miami Vice baddie in whatever episode who gets gunned down uh, before the end. That's where Double K is currently living. But everything that we thought was sacrosanct, everything we thought that had to happen, you are dead right. I speak to so many journalists who are like, press conferences, I don't have to travel across the country for them anymore. I'm always going to be zooming in. But, you know, Mel Kuyper is like, you know what? I don't have to not go to the toilet for the entire draft. I can empty my bladder in between picks and the world <laughs> will keep spinning. I did 10 drafts and I can tell you at a certain point as you got older, it got more difficult. God, Kuiper, that was the only thing I used to tune in for just to see like the big gulp strain on the Kuiper bladder. But the, the, you didn't just do 10 drafts. Who was the face of the first ever ESPN televised draft in 1980, Bob? Oh, geez. Yes, I was there. 25-year-old. Fresh-faced, Bobby Lee, who was who was given his research materials for that draft the night before the draft. After how many production meetings before you went live on air, Bob? That would be good. That would be a zero. That yes. would be run out there for three minutes. Couldn't get a couldn't get couldn't get a rating. Yeah. So like the whole men, the whole world used to be like the Men in Blazers show live from the Sheraton Hotel in New York and the ESPN Broadcast Center. Bob Lee presents a 1980 National Football League draft. You are such a groundbreaker. You are such a pioneer. <laughs> In general, you're a pioneer, but specifically as a football fan, we all know that you are, I mean, you are the godhead. If you want to listen more about Bob's footballing history, dig out the first ever night of the Golden Blazer where we paid full, unabashed, I mean, to be kind of completely belated, full tribute to the light in the darkness that Bob was for American football lovers promoting the sport way, way, way before it was cool. You actually sent me an amazing video 
two weeks ago, a home video shot you took at the 1998 World Cup in France. The best part of that... Oh, the pickup games. Jeremy Shapp's pickup game was so oh, fire. Behind the scenes, traveling around France. Um, the neatest thing, though, for me, uh, and, and I'd forgotten we had climbed all the way up... Uh, Sacré-Cœur. Sacré-Cœur. You panted your way. You didn't climb. You panted. And that was 22 years ago. The neatest thing, though, was in Nantes, in eastern or western France, we had our broadcast location. It was great. They were right down below. I think it was the match. It was a great match between Brazil and Denmark. And we're on the on the can. Seamus and I are on our, our headsets talking back to Brent in New York before the game. And seated right next to us and i, I gotta get this it, we're not in the same shot but it's a pan over i called the game like five feet from pele who was in the next booth over and wasn't a booth just a bunch of seats and that's you know moments like that and, and i had forgotten that 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 video even existed mate i bet you on whatever is men in blazers in brazil pele is currently recounting the story of 1998 <laughs> where he was broadcasting just feet away from the great bob lee but it was amazing to watch you and seamus malin who you mentioned another pioneer just charge around france fling the coverage together here's what i want to know when you were doing that in the 90s did it feel like you were on a mission from God, Blues Brothers style, to deliver soccer to the masses and really grow this thing? Or did each of these World Cups just feel like a fun, one-off adventure and the best-kept secret in the broadcasting industry that you were just drinking up? I, I think each one was a great adventure. I think when you want to talk a messianic quality, I would describe that. Pr- I mean, you always feel that. Any cup you're working on, you know, it's a year out of your life, essentially. It's six weeks overseas just for the tournament, not to mention your trips in advance of that. Um, it's it's trying to bring all those storylines together. But the one cup that made a difference because of the nature of the setting and the effort we put into it, and I think the legacy it left, was 2010 South Africa. <sighs> that, that, you know, Jed Drake, the, the executive producer of that cup and the 2014 cup, in, in Brazil said this 2010 cup uh, will change your life. And he was given the grand statements and delivering on those. And, and he meant it. I, I spent a total of almost three months in South Africa in and around that tournament. I had occasion to interview Archbishop Desmond Tutu in Cape town uh, in association with that uh, made a number of reporting trips and s- the story of that country. Once again, it, just, it was as important as the cup itself, the first African cup, and say what you will about Seth Blatter, and we hail, we have, and we will. He did deliver Africa's first cup, and then they staged it. Now, they, did they waste grand sums of money as much of the infrastructure folding and disrepair 10 years later? Is South Africa as, as challenged a nation as it was back then? Yes, but in, in African standards, it's still the wealthiest nation on the continent, and it still has a democratic form of government. And uh, to, to, to see that nation firsthand, to spend that time to assimilate yourself into it. And then on top of that, to have a tournament with the greatest team in history winning. And we can have that discussion, whether it's, you know, the Spanish side of 2008, 2010, 2012, those three major titles had to be the best. Um, that's you can, and, and, and left the American public with the Landon Don Donovan goal, you know, go, go USA, oh, Sir Ian Dark. Sports center moment. I know. Uh, with all of that wrapped up, you know, culturally, storyline-wise, um, and, and football-wise, and the way it brought the American public along, uh, even at the matches were starting at seven in the morning um, in that time zone. That was that's the most. There's nothing more fulfilling that I've ever been involved in. Let me, let me say that. I agree. I mean, but set Blatter, second mention of Bladders after Mel Kuyper, 
earlier this is this is going very uh proctologist but the uh, apartments for cats don't buy themselves so we're down with fifa on this show now but the american thing the landon donovan thing the 2010 that energy i've got to ask you you know as someone that thought me that u.s men's progress was irrevocable you know 2002 2006 2010 you know big hopes for 2000 14. Do you remember a time when we believed that the US men's progress were, you know, was on course to, you know, hopefully be on par with our women's? What, what's wrong with us, Bob, on the men's side right now? Because you've got a long ball view. I don't know exactly what, but when you see, you know, the Federation just shutting down the youth <sighs> development, deferring to MLS, it just, it, you know, and the Federation, um, unless they've been, you know, spending the money to a Paraguayan tin mine in the wake of the 94, <laughs> in the wake of the 94 world cup, they, they had multi-generational wealth there to, to spend and spend well. Um, it, look, it comes down to players. And until we have a nation where enough kids are playing the game because they want to culturally until you can drive along, like you can drive along, in Brazil or South Africa or anywhere in Europe at night and just see kids playing pickup soccer matches or look down a side street. Uh, you know, you see that now, well, here in Florida, you'll see that with baseball. You, you don't see it a lot with, you don't see it with, until there's a cultural mumbling from that lower level producing players, not just of quality, but of quantity with quality, uh, we're going to be lucky to get past the round of 16. It's the hardest tournament to win in sports. And anybody who thinks that, you know, we'll ever be in a position to win the World Cup in our combined lifetimes, I think is being, it's fatuous. Those people, I've got a Bruce Arena to sell them. I do believe the talent is here. I mean, I think it's about scouting, scouting Latino youth in particular, raising the coaching level considerably in this country. Also having our best young footballers play with the best in Europe and not stay at home when they turn professional. But a question from at McGee Patrick. Have we witnessed, Bob, the high tide moment for the U.S. men's national team in 2014? Or did we just witness the low tide moment for the U.S. men's national team in 2018? What about 2002? That was a pretty good high tide moment, too. Um, and, and by the way, I work with Michael Ballack, who scored that offside goal. Uh, <laughs> well, you you were in the green room with him. What a magnificent. <laughs> Yes, he had to be prevented from having fistfights with uh, Gilberto Silva during the 7-1 Germany-Brazil beatdown. Bollock, uh, who would, who would, who would, who would I, I would say to, to, to Michael, Michael, um, what's the German word for schadenfreude? <laughs> and he'd look at me, and I won't use the exact, I don't want to have to put an explicit E on your webcast or on your podcast. He said, oh, Bob, you're such a bleephole. Uh <laughs> Well, we taught him that we taught, you know, his, his conversational English would come back and we, we, you know, we got him to say, oh, you know, I'm such an awesome soccer player. <laughs> but you know what he showed me that night, though? He sat right next to Gilberto Silva, a member of the 2002 Brazilian side. And of course, Michael couldn't play in the 2002 final because of accumulated yellow cards um, in that same World Cup in, in, in Japan. And we all remember it was 7-1. It was over early. It was, what, 5-0 or 5-1 at halftime. But they were seated right next to each other. We're all watching in our green room where you guys did all your, your work. Um, and I recall Bollock being at least respectful enough of Gilberto that when the, when the goals came early, 
I mean, uh, Debbie Louis had a, had a nightmare that night. And often he would get up, walk down the hallway, close the door, exalt in the hallway, and then walk back in. And he, yeah, he was, he was you not. And I, you and I have a different memory. I have my memory is that after they went three 0 up very early, he bellowed at the top of his voice in a room that was half filled with Brazilians. He he bellowed with pumping the air. He said, "This is too easy." In a very Arnold Schwarzenegger style accent, and Gilberto Silva actually leapt off his couch and had to be restrained by Lalas and Van Nisselrooy. And I was just like, "Let them fight! Uh, Let them fight!" For I, God's sake! I, I don't recall that, but you know, if it makes the good lead for your book, go for it. Oh, Bob, I like this pod to be a light in the darkness, anyway, and have led us to a shadow realm. So let me ask you, as we do all of our Wednesday guests, Bob, lift us. Energize our spirits, allow us to soar. You know, we've asked all of our guests what for a text or a poem or a speech they look to to lift their own spirits, your own Bob Lee Beardy self when you are in need of it. Bob, the floor is yours. All right. Um, I, in talking earlier about September 15th, 1940, I mentioned in passing D Day. Uh, we were uh, in France for the month of uh, June into July in 2016 for the European Championship, and we had enough. Uh, days of rest to uh, finally do one thing I'd been looking to do my entire life, which was go out to Normandy and tour. <sighs> and that's, you, that's it, clearly the pivot point of the 20th century in the eyes of so many. And to actually stand where one of the great speeches, I think, of the 20th century was delivered. It was delivered by Ronald Reagan on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day, if you're not a student of the Second World War and you didn't grow up necessarily you know, learning about it or assimilating it, D-Day was the Allied invasion of the European landmass to begin to claim back uh, from, from, from uh, Hitler's Germany, uh, Germany and the low country, France and the low countries and begin the drive to, to win finally the Second World War. And there are cliffs there in Normandy that are just sheer. They drop to the water and, 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 and it's almost like um, the Grand Canyon, not quite as deep, but right to the water. A hundred feet tall. I mean, just craggy cliffside that no one would walk up if there were stairs there, let alone scale with German machine gun bullets hailing down, right? And on, on this day, on, on the morning of June 6, 1944, the day that the whole world held its breath, those cliffs had to be conquered because there were guns on top of that embankment that were raining destruction and death down on the allies. And so a group of army rangers were given that task. There is a large dagger that is maybe a 80 feet tall stuck granite dagger stuck into the cliffs at the, at the summit of the cliffs commemorating the effort. And on that day in 1984, Ronald Reagan in a speech written by Peggy Noonan, who is now the columnist for the wall street journal delivered this speech and uh, your indulgence, please. We stand on a lonely windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American Rangers began to climb. 
They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin to climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. Behind me, and again, these are the words of Ronald Reagan, behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me, and he's looking at the people, these, these rangers standing in city right in front of him. Before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puenduac. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. And these, they're all gone now, certainly. Reagan died in 2004. And there were several dozen rangers seated right there. And I've stood, you know, you can stand right there. You stand on the cliffs and you look down and you hear those words. I just want to race out of this room and be there as soon as we are given the sign to travel. Where It's also important to know that when Reagan gave this speech, D-Day was a fading memory. It's hard to believe now. But for many people, you know, the U.S. was still healing from the confusion of Vietnam, the chaos of the 1960s and the Cold War. This speech really changed that. And I love the line at the end of the speech. Obviously, the, the great line is, these are the boys of Point Duoc. These are the men who took the cliffs. But beautiful as that is, the lines that really speak to me as I look back over this speech that you kind of force me to engage with in the most wonderful way, Bob, which is what you do. The final line, strengthened by their courage, heartened by their valour and borne by their memory, let us continue to stand for the ideals for which they lived and died. Oh, Bob Lee, you are a legend. You're an icon. You're a pathfinder. Most of all, I mean, very much a mentor for me personally, as I'm sure many of our listeners will attest because they feel it too. You are a friend. When I listen to you, I think of the Springsteen lyrics. Once we made a promise, we swore we'd always remember. No retreat, baby. No surrender. Oh, Bob, no surrender. To better days ahead for all. To you and all the Lees and all the Keys. We wish you courage. <laughs> and Bob, I'm taking from this. Win the day. That's it. Win the day. Win the next day. And then... When you have a moment down the line, take a breath, get some perspective and realize we're further than where we were. No surrender. <laughs>